The title of our lesson today is A New Creation. Just a little bit of background because we've been away from our studies for about three weeks now. Our studies have come from the book of Isaiah, which the authorship is attributed to three different individuals. Scholars give them the names 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Isaiah. That portion of the book, chapters 1 through 39, is attributed to Isaiah, who lived in the 8th century at the time of the fall of the northern kingdom. 2nd Isaiah are the chapters 40 through 55, which were written during the time of the exile of the second of the southern kingdom in Babylonia. And the third Isaiah is uh, chapters 56 through 66, which have to do with the time after the exile is over and those in captivity have returned to their homeland. Our lesson today comes from the third Isaiah. The exile is over. Now, this period in which the Israelites were in exile was just not simply a political period of unrest. The prophets prior to the fall of Jerusalem and the carrying off of the people to Babylon, it was a political event, but it was a deeply spiritual event as well. In 597, Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem because Jerusalem had been paying tribute to Babylonia for their peace, but King Jehoiachin decided that he would no longer pay tribute. So the Babylonians came to the city of Jerusalem, the city fell, and the king and all of his family and some of the leaders, the spiritual leaders, Elijah among them, were carried off into captivity. And the uncle to Jehoiachin, King Zedekiah, was put upon the throne to rule as a vassal state. Unfortunately, though Jeremiah pled with him not to do so, Zedekiah in 586, nine years later, decided that they would become independent. They would no longer pay tribute to Babylon. They would become an independent state. And he began an uprising, and all the full armies of Babylon came against the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the city, burned the temple, tore down the walls, took King Zedekiah and his sons into captivity, killed the sons of Zedekiah in his presence, and so that his last memory visually recorded in his mind would be the death of his sons. They blinded him and then took him into captivity. They went to the country and they took all of the leaders of the country, leaving behind only those who were dependent upon others for livelihood, who couldn't take care of themselves, the lower classes, leaving them behind, took all of the important people off into captivity in 586. Judah was no more. The nation had fallen. Those left behind intermarried with foreigners. The Samaritans came in and infiltrated the land, and there was nothing left of the former state of Judah other than the geographical area on which it lay. And the people 
were taken into Babylon. They wept because they could no longer worship God in a strange place. They were cut off from everything that they had known, everything that was familiar. It was the fulfillment of the prophecies of all the prophets who had warned them, if you do not return to the Lord, you will be carried off into captivity. You will no longer have a kingdom. And the prophecies were fulfilled. But God is not one to turn his back upon the people. After the children of Israel had been brought out of Egypt and were being led into the promised land, it was necessary for them to spend 40 years in the wilderness so that they would be ready to inhabit the foreign land, make it their own, and establish a covenant relationship with God. It was almost the same story all over again. They had been in captivity from 586 to 539, almost the same equivalent time. They had been able to reassert themselves spiritually on the fundamentals of what their faith were and not just simply dependent upon the temple and all that it stood for. They had a temple no more. They were encouraged during this time of captivity. And then in 539, Cyrus of Persia defeated Babylonia, becoming head of the new state he freed the captives of Israel to return to their homeland. Some returned, most didn't. But those who did return came with the admonition of the third Isaiah as to what the situation would be now. Listen to these words. I will create anew. Forget everything that has happened in the past. Forget the broken covenants of the past. Forget the warnings of the prophets of the past. This is a new day. You will come in and you will inhabit the land and I will make all things new. And our scripture lesson today has to do with the promises of God in this new land made new. For one thing, the warnings now are individual warnings and not national warnings. Prior to the time of the exile, everything had to do with the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. As a nation, they would fall. As a nation, they would survive. As a nation, they would be judged. This would no longer be the case. Now it would be the individual and not the nation. The relationship with God would not be as a nation in relationship with God, but the individual in relationship with God. And there were promises and there were responsibilities. Every time that God makes a promise as to how things will be, it's dependent upon us to see that it's brought about. When Eden was formed, it was perfect in every way, but it was dependent upon Adam and Eve to till the ground, to keep it the way that it was, especially keep it spiritually. They failed and that perfection then faded into imperfection. The same thing was true when they came into the promised land, the land of milk and honey and all the promises that God made of what that nation would be. It didn't become that because the people refused to cooperate with God. And it was the role of the prophets to remind them and to try to bring them back into that relationship. And ultimately it came to the point of where both nations could no longer survive 
because they had totally turned their backs upon God, and so they were allowed to be, go, to be taken into captivity, and both nations lost. So here is a new beginning. But every new beginning and every promise of a new life depends upon our response to it. Seven or eight years ago, when we came to Johnson City to live, we bought a home. We looked for a long time before we bought, but the minute I saw the home that we bought, I said, this is it. I said, don't wait till tomorrow. Somebody might get it. Call the realtor when we get home. And the next day we made our offer and it was accepted. I love our home. It's not ornate and elaborate. It's a simple house sitting upon the brow of a hill with a drive coming down to the cul-de-sac surrounded by a picket fence. It's a federal house in architectural style. And I dreamed of Christmas decorating that fence and that tree in front with thousands of lights. I visioned what it could be. Now in the back of the house, there was a vacant lot. For about 12 feet, there was a grassy plot that had been kept mowed, but beyond it and most of the back was just wilderness. But as Brad and I plotted through that growth of weeds and shrubs and maverick trees, we found a path, a stone path had been laid out. I learned from a neighbor that when the builder of the house built it, he put plastic over all the ground, front and back, covered everything with plastic except for two small parts, which was grassy. He had put mulch on top of the plastic. He didn't want to mow it, I suppose. And then he had put statuary and made a statuary garden. But when he sold the house and moved, he took his statues with him. There was one owner between him and us, and he had no interest in keeping the back cultivated, and it had just become a vacant lot. There was nothing of beauty there. But as Brad and I walked through, I began to see what it could be. And so I began to use a little hard work and imagination, a little fertilizer here, a few bulbs here, no professional stepped foot on that backyard. It was to be me, reflecting me in every sense. And the joy that has come to me, now I have four water gardens, a coursing stream of water filling one of the pools. I have the statues of the Four Seasons, the classic architect, uh, statues of the Four Seasons placed that strategic places, a fountain that shoots water up into the air and we eat breakfast to the sound of water. It's everything that I dreamed it could be. Carlene, met, Carlene is on the Arts Council here in Johnson City and she met a member the other day who lives not too far from us. And when she learned where we live, she said, oh, that bed and breakfast. Every time I see it, I think of a bed and breakfast. <laughs> Simple, but so desirable. It was a dream in the beginning, and it would have stayed that if I had not done what was necessary to bring that dream to fruition. That's God's dream for all of us living in harmony and peace and love, but it depends upon us. 
it's God's dream and he affords everything necessary to bring that dream about if we will cooperate with him. I planted the seed. I pulled up every bit of that plastic by hand. Hundreds of feet of plastic embedded in weeds and vines. I've never done anything in my life more strenuous. But God made the rain to fall. He made the sun to shine. He did everything else. What I couldn't do, he did to bring it about. God and we working together can bring about the vision that he gave to third Isaiah that he shared with the people. And what was that vision? There will be joy and laughter, joy in Jerusalem. It had been a long time since there was any joy in Jerusalem. It was the weeping of the people. The word weep is one of the saddest words in the English language. Wherever there's weeping, there's heartbreak and there's sadness. The book of Revelation promises that when we get to heaven, there'll be no more weeping. And what a promise that is. He said that children will no longer die in their infancy. That infant mortality would rise and children would grow up to manhood and live full lives. Can you imagine that kind of promise at a time in which infant mortality was so high because of the various ravages upon children that took their lives? And there's no sadness, no cause for weeping greater than the loss of a child. I've never lost one. And in all of my ministry, I only had one funeral for a child, and I've always been grateful for that because of the emotional trauma of comforting when there's a child whose life has been taken. But that one instance was when we were in Newport. A little child had been born with severe physical difficulties at the time of birth. The parents, being young, had no way that they could meet the financial obligations of caring for the child's needs. So the grandparents took the child and reared it. He was taken to Vanderbilt Hospital three or four times a year for special treatment that he had to receive in order to keep him alive. The grandparents were owners of a funeral home there in Newport, and they were well able to meet the financial needs. The child became so loved by the people of Vanderbilt Hospital that they adopted him because of his personality and the warmth and the joy that was in that family whenever they came for those periods of time. He reached the age of eight. Doctors said he would never live that long, but he did. And then he died. Carlene's parents, who live in Nashville, sent us an article from the paper in Nashville telling about the death of the little boy that had been so loved by everyone and how the hospital had gone in mourning for the little boy in spite of the fact that deaths took place there all the time. He was a very special little boy. The mortician in Newport, who was the grandfather, was president of the Mortician's Association for the State of Tennessee. So on the day of the funeral, the church was packed. Auditorium, the balcony, wasn't a place for anyone else to see it. Morticians from all over the state were there, paying respect to the one who led them. They asked Carlene to sing, Jesus Loves Me. How she did, I'll never know. There wasn't a dry eye 
when she finished. Morticians who dealt with death every day, who went through the griefs of families every day, were wiping tears from their face. There's such sadness, such weeping in the death of a child. So the first promise that was made was that the children won't die, they'll grow up and live a full life. One of the promises of the Old Testament that's repeated over and over again to those who are blessed is that they will live full lives. That if you die before you're 100 years old, then something's wrong. You know, someone said of Keats when he died, he died with half the music left unplayed. It's always said when a person dies at midlife or shortly thereafter or shortly before. Every stage of life has its own excitement and fulfillment. I've gone through more stages than any one of you here. Now, I know that's a surprise. <laughs> because you remember, I told you that every one of you is older than I. <laughs> I wouldn't trade any one stage. Each one is richer, fuller. If by chance I were offered an opportunity to go back to any previous period of my life and start living it over again, I'd say no thank you. Everyone was fulfillment in the fullest sense, but each one is better than the one before. I've been happy all my life, but I've never been happier than I am right now. Every stage is rich and full. And God says that's how it ought to be. And there will be life lived all the way through for those of you who are a part of this new creation. He said, in this new creation, you'll build a home and you'll live in it. Nobody will take it from you. This was something that Israel would relish because they were at war all the time and they were always being routed out of their homes and the land taken over. There was no security in their homes. To have a home that you could live in and never have anyone drive you from it. One of the saddest things I can imagine apart from physical problems is for someone to lose their home, have to leave it behind and go on to lesser dreams. But the third Isaiah said, you don't need to worry about that. You'll build a house and you'll live in it. And you'll plant your crops and you will partake of the fruits of those crops. You'll see them go to harvest. Too many times the lands had been taken over by intruders. And though the labor had gone into producing the crops, they never matured for the person who planted them. There was always someone to come and take it away. Whether armies or individuals, it was a common thing to lose your crops to others. But that will no longer be. But best of all, said third Isaiah, I will be so close to you that you won't have to pray to me and ask for things. I'll know you need them. And I'll answer before you even ask. What a close relationship with God. The sermon this morning and the one to be preached at 11 will be talking about losing your 
faith and feeling that God isn't as close as he once was. Well, this had happened to the Hebrews. They had prayed and they had prayed while they were in exile. And one of their cries was, no one's there to answer. But now it would be different. God would answer before you even ask. This is the new creation promised to the children of Israel after exile when they came into their new land. They're still waiting. We're still waiting. What's wrong? Is God not true to his promises? God's saying, I'm waiting. I'm ready. I'm waiting. The world is the best it's ever been and the worst it's ever been. Eventually, all things will be as God has promised. When depends upon us and whether in this world or the next it will be. That's God's promise. But the fulfillment depends upon our willingness to pull up the plastic and the malts and cut down the scrubs and take out the things that are a blight, feed the children, talk peace to nations, give livelihood to the impoverished, to love one another. The other night, we watched the movie Gandhi on television. I'd seen it before, and I relished the chance to see it again. Gandhi was a deeply religious man. What he did for India is unbelievable, but primarily because of the man that he was and the commitment that he made, that he was able to make that difference. Gandhi was an Anglican, reared in London, trained as an attorney. In every sense of the word, he was a Britisher of the highest society. He went to South Africa as an attorney because of the problems that existed among his people there. This wasn't in the movie, but I remember it from seminary days, and I don't know whether I read it or I was told it, so you can't hold me to it. <laughs> I've always been so principled that if I cannot give you a source of information that I give you, then I'll say this is according to Vance so that you can take it whatever way you want. But I have never, ever given out anything as fact unless I can go back and give you the source of my information. I can't give you the source, but I remember it from seminary days and being told that the first thing that Gandhi did when he went to South Africa was to go to church. He was Anglican church and his entry was blocked because of his color. He never went to an Anglican church again. He rejected Christianity that day. He said, if Christianity does not include everyone, then it isn't a true religion. He was a deeply religious man, but he didn't subscribe to any particular faith. And in the movie, he made the statement, I am Christian, I am Muslim, I am Jew, I am Hindu, 
and he was all things because he took the best of all religions and lived by them, though he did not subscribe to any particular one. And of all the religions from which he took a source to live by, he himself elevated one above all the others, and it was the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is what gave India its freedom, brought about through one man who lived by it. Think what would happen if in our society the Sermon on the Mount would become the rule of life. Then third Isaiah would say, I told you so. Two or three minutes. Do you have any questions? Comments? And you left that one key ingredient. Take a Muslim boy and rear him as your own. But uh, it works. Any other comment or question? Thank you. Thank you, Vance, for that. Inspiring message. Life is great.